Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Got him scared to death. Hope he doesn't see it right through me. Now I really wish that I knew how to swim. This is the Mulan story that enchanted generations of Disney lovers and provided an all-too-rare opportunity for Asian-American kids to see themselves on screen. The animated film remains one of Disney's all-time greatest hits. Fans greeted Disney's announcement of a live-action reboot starring an all-Asian cast with great excitement. But COVID forced the live-action Mulan from the big screen to Disney streaming, and the film's recent debut sparked controversy both here and in China. China. Ironically, at a time when Asian Americans are being attacked publicly, erroneously blamed for the coronavirus, 2020 has been fertile ground for significant growth in Asian-themed feature films and TV programs, independent films helmed by Asian directors, and Asian actors in lead roles. What is the power of this expansion of representation, and does it especially matter in this moment? Later in the show, whether you're working from home, just entering the job search, or recently unemployed, we're all making career pivots during the pandemic. Local career specialists break down how to navigate the employment changes brought about by COVID-19. But first, joining me remotely, Elena Kreef, professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian-American visual history in photography, film, and popular culture. Welcome, Elena. Thank you. Also with me, Jenny Korn, fellow and the founding coordinator of the Race and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Hi, Jenny. Hi, excited to be here again. Well, I'm excited, too. Uh, Both of you have been with me for the last couple of years as we have explored the excitement after Crazy Rich Asians two years ago in 2018, hoping to see uh, a more expansive representation of Asian Americans in film and TV. Um, Some of that seems to have happened, but uh, Mulan was supposed to be the successor in some way to to that huge uh, blockbuster film and it, it, that was going to offer broad appeal to everybody. Well, yes and no. <laughs> so you heard the animated clip. Before we dive in, let's take a listen to the live action Mulan, which premiered for a fee to Disney Plus subscribers on September 4th. And the film was originally set to release in theaters, as I said, in March, but changed due to the pandemic. Loyal, brave. 
true. It is my duty to protect my family. Ancestors, please protect her. What is your name, soldier? Hua Jun, Commander, son of Hua Zhou. We're going to make men out of every single one of you. So, sounds exciting. Um, I mean, it's it's quite something to see. I can imagine how uh, more interesting it would have been on the real big screen. I saw it on my larger computer screen. But let's hear from the two of you. Jenny, you kick it off. Well, I am happy that we are convening for a third time, um, as you said, because it means that in terms of substance, we actually have three years now of movies, of TV, um, of media depictions to discuss Asian American representations. I think that's a move in the right direction. Unfortunately, as uh, I think you uh, sort of implied, Mulan did not do well in terms of box offices either here in the United States or abroad. I do think that one of the issues is its lack of accessibility. Um, the fact that it's not only on Disney, but the extra specially high priced part of Disney, you have to pay an extra $30 to watch this movie. I think Disney was hoping that it would be enough of a draw that people would pay that kind of money. But um, in the end, I think it actually meant that most people, most Asian Americans, especially those of us who don't have kids and don't subscribe to Disney, um, it's just exceedingly difficult to even watch this movie. Were you, before I move on to Elena, did you like it um, just as a, you know, a piece of entertainment? I'm going to say that I watched this movie. I also watched both of the cartoons. And there was Mulan the cartoon, also Mulan 2. There's actually a sequel that's a cartoon as well. Oh, I never saw that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I watched mm-hmm. both. And I really enjoyed, um, as an adult, like right now, watching the cartoon version way more. Like, mm-hmm. just not even the same universe as the live action version. For me, my my encouragement would be have people watch the cartoon over this movie. Okay. So, Elena, um, before you say anything, uh, just to follow up what Jenny said about the box office, it opened in China only to $23.2 million. The movie cost $200 million to make. A Seven Park Data, which is an analytic firm, says that 29% of Disney subscribers paid the extra price. And by their calculation, that would be about $60 million, and that would calculate to $263 million, which would put them ahead of their $200 million that they paid for the movie, but not much. All right. Now, with that set up, go right ahead, Elena. <laughs> yeah, I got gouged by Disney. I paid the $29 for the for Disney premiere. But, you know, I'm an Asian American film historian, so I, you know, and I'm invested in Mulan. The great thing about Mulan live action, are, uh, it's the lineup of all of the Asian and Asian American actors that they brought together. Uh, and, uh, and even the surprise cameo of Ming-Na Wen, who voices Mulan in the original animated. She comes back as the Empress at the very end. It's seeing those Asian American faces on the screen. That that was my great, great pleasure. And in terms of my critical review, this is what I'm gonna say. I never thought in a million years that I would become nostalgic for Eddie Murphy's Mushu. <laughs> who was a dragon in the animated, if people haven't seen that. Go ahead. <laughs> that I used to really hate, but like, wow, I was so, I was craving for some comic relief. I was craving the return of Mushu. Um, anyway, yeah. so, and also all of the, the great pleasure with gender play, and even what you could say is the queerness of the original animated yeah. film, 
all of that just goes out the window for a, a film that looks at cross-gender play in the legendary story of woman warrior Mulan. Like, where did that go? Well, uh, I should mention that uh, a lot of the Chinese critics were mad about certain other inaccurate details. So, for example, the Southern-style house that Mulan is from, but she's likely from the North, uh, the depiction of qi as a power that only boys could wield, according to this article, when in fact there is no such gender restriction. Um, some people said the makeup and the costumes were mad. Then they didn't like the young woman who played the the main character said she didn't have any uh, difference in facial expression, whether she was in the scene with the uh, matchmaker or whether she was at war. And so these were some of the things that were upsetting to the Chinese audience. And I should mention that Disney said it articulated the many ways it went out of its way to test this, to try to be authentic. But then these little big things didn't get paid attention to. Um, how do you feel about these inaccuracies, uh, uh, Jenny? Well, I mean, um, I think that these inaccuracies won't, won't even be picked up by an American audience. And that's um, one of the critiques I have. Um, this is actually both, the, you know, the cartoon as well as the live action movies. Um, they're set in a particular period. Um, they are period pieces in early AD. Because there are so few movies about Asians, much less with an all Asian cast, most non-Asian viewers will end up conflating these media depictions that come out now mm. in 2020 mm. to be reflective of 2020. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. and that mm. is the that is the problem with having so few media representations of Asians and Asian Americans is that we don't have an audience that can differentiate between this is a really, really old movie um, set with old themes and set in an old time. That does not mean that um, these are the expectations currently of women in Asia. Yes. Uh, Elena, would you agree? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also say, you know, Mulan is not a documentary about <laughs> a certain period of China. This is not a National Geographic special. This is a feature film. This is based on fantasy. And for those of us who love the magical power of film to, to create something, uh, I'm, I'm not wedded to these tropes of authenticity. I think that's a really, uh, that's a dangerous slope to go down. I think the bigger problem is, the problems that you run into when you're making a film about Asian and Asian American characters uh, and, uh, and stories, and you have an amazing cast, but you really have the problem of, um, uh, of a non-Asian production crew in terms of mm. writers and producers and directors. Listen, Nikki Caro is a woman who directed The Amazing Whale Rider, and I, just, I, expected, I expected more, but uh, maybe this is an argument for why you really need to bring Asian and Asian American creatives to your table. And Elena, I should say that's been a big critique of this film, in addition to some of the filming taking place uh, in a part of China where there are human rights uh, crimes uh, alleged to be going on, and people are very upset about that. And that became clear because of the credits in the film. At the end, eight government entities in China are, are given, uh, are thanked, and a number of them are propaganda institutions. So people have been very upset about that. Some have called for the boycott. Jenny, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think this brings up the issue uh, related to that of uh, Liu Yifei, the film's Chinese-born lead actress. She also um, posted in favor on a social media site, Weibo, um, in China, uh, in defense of um, Hong Kong's police and the, their uh, unfair treatment of pro-democracy protesters. 
And I think that it brings up the question of what are the political responsibilities uh, that Disney has as a company, but also that actors and actresses have in terms of voicing their opinions and then living with the consequences, um, like the calls for this boycotting of this movie. So this brings me back to the question that I, I think I asked uh, you all last year, which is, is all representation, um, for lack of a better word, good, despite all these issues and some of the flaws and some of the criticisms? Will this movie help to expand uh, other opportunities for particularly for the, the cast members who are just fantastic? Elena? Be really careful where you film. Uh, which government agencies you need to uh, win their approval. You know, especially right now, listen, all eyes are on China in 2020. And making a film on location is certainly really difficult, really challenging. And um, they're creating a lot of political problems and, and, and challenges that uh, I think, you know, I, I would just say maybe shoot that film somewhere else. Hmm. I think that this, this is, I think in some ways, this is a disaster for Disney. I don't know if it's going to open the door for more live action. Um, one of the biggest problems for me, I mean, I've seen the other live action versions of Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, but, you know, they just sort of, they stripped the spirit of the original animated film out of the script. And there was just, other than some sumptuous right. scenery, there's just no pleasure in this film. Yes, there's no songs, there's no music. There's very little comedy. I mean, that goes back to what Elena said about um, wanting and missing another voice. That's a shame because, again, it didn't have to be so serious, this movie. It could have been more playful and more whimsical, which is actually what I think a lot of people expect from Disney. Yeah, well, they didn't get it this time. <laughs> I was, but for me, one of the great moments and potential of the film is Gong Lee's performance as a shape-shifting witch. Mm. In my own fantasies and the way that I'm already rewriting this film, I was so waiting for a Gong Li Mulan alliance. Mm. Two women, our, our shape-shifting witch and our young warrior, the master of chi. I wanted to see them topple, topple the patriarchy and ride off into right. the sunset or fly off together. Like, bring back Gong Li. I want, I want a film for her. That would be my sequel. You know, I thought that might happen at one point, and it looked like they decided to to veer off from that. So that, I think you make a good point. And maybe that is a sequel. We'll see. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me remotely are Elena Kreef of Wellesley College and Jenny Korn of the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University. We're talking about Asian representation in film and television. So as I said at the beginning, what's interesting is that we're in a moment, which we can talk about, which is very uncomfortable for a lot of Asian Americans in the wake of this very serious virus. Um, there has been some some stereotyping, some erroneous blaming. Um, it's become quite a political thing. It, it's so huge, the kind of public attacks on Asian Americans, that the House actually passed a resolution um, just about a week or so ago to denounce the racism toward Asian Americans that has risen up as a result of COVID-19. Now, I mentioned that because some people might be listening to me thinking, well, it's not that bad. I've heard of isolated cases. Actually, it is that bad. Um, and it got uh, 
this is the House is mostly Democratic, but just to be clear, it got Republican backing too, and it passed 243 to 164. So that's the context that we're living in. It's kind of weird to me to see that there are a number of other films that have Asian American casts and stories that seem to be flourishing. But I wanted to get your take on that. So, Elena, I'll start with you this time. Well, you know, when we first met Kelly, we talked about whether or not Asian August 2018 was going to be a turning point. I remember in that conversation saying that Hollywood allows Asian American films every 27 years, and that 27 years is, is like the equivalent of Asian American dog years, and that we'd have to wait until 2043 to see the next Crazy Rich Asians. But I think, I'm actually happy to report that I think Crazy Rich Asians broke the dam. Uh, we've been looking at Asian August 2019. We're now in 2020. And I was, I was thinking about what we have seen this past year in film and television. It's been an amazing year for an incredible diversity of representation, different Asian American stories. Uh, in fact, I would say 2020, Asian August 2020 is the year of the Asian American woman. Hmm. Uh, Jenny, what's your response? Well, I like what you said about the emphasis um, on this particular sociocultural moment, Callie. And I'm watching um, Lovecraft Country, um, which is a too TV scary for me. So go ahead. <laughs> um, it, it does have it does have um, horror elements to it, but I bring it up because it's it's produced by Jordan Peele. It's on HBO. It stars Journey Smollett and Jonathan Major. Their last episode, which was the sixth episode tells a really beautiful and very complicated interracial love story between a Korean woman and a Black American soldier during the Korean War. Lovecraft Country reminds viewers about the racism in the United States that both Blacks and Asians faced. And this is a, a, it's a TV show that's also depicting Blacks and Asians as risking their lives during the Korean War to fight as soldiers for the United States. And I think that portrayal does a good job of aligning Asian and Black communities in fighting against racism. And I think it makes sense that they would do it now, particularly during the social cultural moment that emphasizes Black Lives Matter. And we need more media representations that show Asians in this manner, in a supportive, progressive, and activist role in fighting against racism and being in solidarity with all communities of color. Mm. Okay, um, let me mention some some films uh, and some TV projects that have gotten some attention in this time period. Um, Lucky Grandma is uh, now on Prime Video. Again, a number of these movies that would have premiered in the theater are streaming, so you can look around. But it, Lucky Grandma is an independent film. Um, I loved it. I just watched it, and I thought it was great. It features a lot of the actors, some of the older Asian actors who are veterans that, you know, played all these bit parts for years and years and now are, you know, uh, you know, being able to play some larger parts. Uh, the the lead character in Lucky Grandma was in Joy Luck Club. So we're making that full circle again. The other one is Yellow Rose. And we have a clip from Yellow Rose. This is not out yet. It's uh, premiering. This is about a Filipina teen from Texas pursuing her dreams as a country music performer. I never fit in. Never could win. This isn't the life you wanted. Though I tried and tried, it'll be better for you. This feeling don't end. I promise. I fell in love with country music when I was a little girl. When are you gonna let me hear you play? Round home. 
too scared to perform them songs. Ain't gonna do no good. Now, I think it's interesting because uh, the way, in in my experience, that representation expands is when you find people everywhere, as they are already, but when you can show them that way uh, in pop culture in these various uh, situations. The last film I'll mention uh, in this section is Nomadland, again, not out yet, uh, but Chloe Zhao, who is the director of that film, just won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival, and she's the first woman in a decade and only the second woman of color ever to win the top prize. I should say people will probably start hearing about this movie um, because um, Frances McDormand is the lead actress, and they're uh, speculating now that she may be nominated for Best Director at the Oscars. So what do you all think about these new entities that are out there, and, and, and what does it say about the various ways, that, including Lovecraft Country, as, as Jenny just mentioned? Elaine, I'll let you start off. I'm so excited about about Yellow Rose. I have it on my calendar for when it's going to be released in about a week, I think, week and a half. Um, very excited, too. Uh, this is the first story featuring Filipina-Americans, immigrant stories, and Western music. Bring it on. Um, thank you for also mentioning the great Chloe Zhao. I have to tell you, I have been following Chloe Zhao since 2015 when her first independent film, Songs That My Brother Taught Me, broke. It was part of a trilogy followed in 2018 by the writer. And then uh, mm. Nomadland is considered uh, the third in a series set against the American West. The first two were filmed on the Lakota, uh, uh, the Lakota Reservation of Pine Ridge. Chloe Zhao is the one to watch. She is the first Asian woman to direct um, Marvel Studios film Eternals. It's coming out, I think, in uh, 2021. If Chloe Zhao, who is a brilliant storyteller, she knows how to tell stories, she knows how to connect people to the landscape. If she can, if she can take that talent and, uh, and make a really successful action film, uh, then the game is forever changed in my opinion. I think she's the finest, the finest uh, director out there. And the fact that she's young and she's also Chinese and she knows how to tell American stories is, is just amazing. Um, Jenny, they're waxing poetic about her work, um, all the critics. So um, she she could be up there at the Oscars. And I say that uh, noting that there are only 1% of Asians nominated uh, for Emmys. Well, you know, if y'all remember um, from last year, I, I made a little bit of a joke. But now, um, after listening to Callie talk about Yellow Rose, last year I'd said, you know, I wanted greater diversity in representations of Asian Americans. And um, I made a joke, I'm Southern, I'm from Alabama, I'm Thai, my parents immigrated from Thailand. And wouldn't it be funny if they ever made a movie about Asians being Southern? And then here comes Kelly saying, this movie isn't released yet, but here comes Yellow <laughs> Rose, it's gonna be about Filipina, and she's gonna be a country music star. Uh, you, don't, you can't even see my face right now, my face is so big and with a smile. Like to think <laughs> that our powers of manifestation have worked. You know what I'm saying? Like I am definitely now going to go watch this movie and cheer on my Filipina sister. I hope she has a deep Southern drawl. I mean, you know, she's from Texas. She's not from Alabama. Hey, but she's going to sound like me and she's going to look like me. And that's going to be amazing. And again, it goes back to what you said earlier, Callie, that you know, representation does matter. And seeing, um, being able to see anything that looks like me, that sounds like me on the screen, really, it, it's so affirming. 
And so I'm, I'm very excited and I hope that, um, you know, come next year when we meet again on our fourth time, we'll be able to discuss Yellow Rose. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, let me switch and say that there is a we've we've lost a couple of uh, really interesting uh, cultural um, entities that that added to the conversation, expanded the representation. Fresh off the boat, this was ABC's um, sitcom featured an all Asian cast for the most part. Um, in terms of the family, and it had its final episode uh, earlier this year, a six season run, which is pretty huge. Here's a clip from the show. I am not letting you go to a rap concert. Yes, Mom. They're rappers. But they're white rappers. White. Eddie, we have been through this before, and the answer is always the same. But they're sort of Asian. No. Eddie, I just don't understand you. The music you listen to, the way you talk, your clothes. Buttoning the top button and letting the rest flap out like a cape. That's called being a G, Mom. All right, so that's uh, some a scene from Fresh Off the Boat, and um, I enjoyed it very much. It was actually based on the real life story of of Eddie Wong, who's a real life chef, and the lead character, uh, well, one of the lead characters, because there were several sons uh, in the in the story, played him. Um, it's over. It had a huge impact in terms of just seeing that family, that regular American, Asian-American family, go through what they did. But they had very specific cultural references all through it. So I thought that was important. Jenny, I know you had some thoughts about this. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, you know, again, this is the power of media, media representation. So, you know, Fresh Off the Boat was on ABC, um, and so that meant a lot of, um, you know, uh, American families had access to it. Um, things that were shown on that show, um, people will come back to me and try to uh, apply them to me. So for example, um, there was an episode about uh, a success perm, which meant that uh, when you had enough money, you would curl your hair because they had very straight hair. And uh, people would you know, ask me about my hair. My hair is permed as well. And so it is, it is curly and wavy. It was never because of a success for me. It was because I didn't want straight hair. You know what I mean? And so um, I did not realize that there was a more, a greater meeting now be given to it because of this show, The Fresh Off the Boat. So that, you know, that's kind of a comedic uh, message, but it's still a message that gets distributed out there because people are watching this show and they're gaining implications from it. One critique that I had, because I kept waiting, like I watched every episode and I kept waiting for them to do an episode that discussed interracial dating. And I was mm. very disappointed. Um, out of that six-year run, why did they not take the opportunity, uh, which is missed now, to teach an American audience that Asian is actually a race too, that Asian is a race, and that there are considerations um, to be held when it comes to dating outside of a race, even more so inter-ethnic dating is a thing, and that um, dating outside of Taiwanese or a Chinese family is also a big deal. Um, you know, again, it's on ABC, and so shows that were similar and being uh, shown at the same time were blackish and mixedish. And I watched both of those series have episodes on interracial dating, but Fresh Off the Boat didn't. And I think that's a really, um, it's, it's really too bad because um, by not talking about um, interracial dating, it implies that there's no issues, and that's just not true. Um, hmm. So that was, uh, 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 I wish they had done that before they ended the, the series. So some culture, but not as much as you would have liked to have seen explored. Uh, Elena, what do you think? 
Well, I think I just actually watched the season finale um, uh, this week. Fresh off the boat had a good run. I think of it. I think of it as ABC's attempt to make reparations for their failure of Margaret Cho's All American Girl in 90, 90, uh, 94, 95. Mm. And I also remember just a few years ago, uh, I think 2018. Do you remember the hashtag starring Constance Wu starring yes. Sancho? Mm -hmm. Listen, props to Constance Wu, because I feel like, you know, maybe thanks to Crazy Rich Asians, she's, she's really come into her own. She, and she's, she's, she's ready to, uh, and so is Randall Park, to say goodbye to that show. Um, I agree with Jenny. There are so many limitations of Fresh Off the Boat. But you know what? I've lost some faith in network television to, to push the, the boundaries. And actually, I look elsewhere. I look to Hulu. I look to Netflix. I look to HBO for doing, doing storylines that are, are a little more edgy. Um, and actually, in some ways, I think that Netflix has the market cornered on some of, some of the freshest, some of the edgiest Asian American shows of this past year. All right. Well, speaking of Netflix, um, there is a show that's gotten quite a bit of controversy. It's uh, called Indian Matchmaking. It's a reality TV show. I'm going to let you listen to a clip of it. It premiered in July and People have just gone wild. Some, you know, it's very popular in general, but a lot of Asians have felt, uh-uh, this is not what we want to do. But anyway, here you go. In India, the marriages, they are between two families. So the parents guide their children, and that is the work of a matchmaker. Someone charming? Equal to my pay or higher. Adjustment is also important. You have to be attracted to the person, and the person has to be good. I don't think that it's a lot to ask for. Matchmaking has become a tough job. But I'm trying my best. All right, response. I want to say I did. I binge watched Indian Matchmaking. I, I watched all of season one, one sitting. You know, um, Indian Matchmaking sets us back a decade, and for me, gives new meaning to the hashtag terms hate watching and cringe binging. Okay. <laughs> so terrible. Uh, I would say if you're interested in really interesting uh, South Asian romance and, and, uh, and dating stories, please go to Netflix and please watch Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever uh, mm. teen series. So much better. That is, that is a wonderful series, I have to say. Um, all right. We're, look, we're at the point where we look forward. Um, and I, you know, I get to quote you from last time where you were thinking that, boy, this is really, we're going to be in a different space this year. We are, that we can see. There'll be more. We are. There, there is. Um, so what do you see for 2021? I mean, we're in an interesting uh, time because of COVID, so there are some constraints. But given all that and given some of the breakthroughs that have happened, and as Elena said, you know, crazy rich agents knock down the door and much is happening as a result. Uh, where do you expect uh, that we will be next Asian August or September? Um, I definitely hope, um, and again, I'm pulling our powers of manifestation, um, that in a year from now, we will see um, more either episodes of TV shows or even an entire movie that does depict stories of Asians and Asian Americans that are working within the activist movement of Black Lives Matter. I think that we're already getting um, some traction on that again with seeing uh, better depictions of Asian communities with communities of color. And that is my hope for 2021. Okay, Elena. Two things. I think 2021, we're gonna be talking about the rise of Chloe Zhao as the director that we've all been waiting for. 
And then I also would like to predict that in 2021, we'll be talking about the impact that our new multiracial, multi-ethnic vice president, Kamala Harris, <laughs> Jamaican and Indian descent, has made on our culture. All right. Well, that's that's a, that's an interesting way to end. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for your input. And um, hope to see you here next year, same time next year. Thank you. Thank you so much. Elena Kreef is a professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian American visual history in photography, film, and popular culture. Jenny Korn is a fellow and the founding coordinator of the Race and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Coming up, searching for a job has always been difficult, but now how many newly unemployed or new to the marketplace must look during a pandemic? Which jobs are hiring? What's the correct etiquette? And how to handle employers' expectations in remote interviewing? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. 14 million Americans are out of work right now. Jobs lost during the economic downturn triggered by COVID-19. The Pew Research Center documented the sharp incline from 6.2 million unemployed Americans in February to 20.5 million in May. For those looking to find new work, what's the best way to navigate a job search during a pandemic? Meanwhile, the class of 2020 has produced 2 million new college grads with bachelor's degrees entering one of the worst job markets in decades. And for those currently employed and working remotely from home, how can they succeed in this out-of-office workspace and Zoom office etiquette? Joining me remotely, Karen Cardozo, Assistant Vice President of Northeastern University's Employer Engagement and Career Design. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. And Bree Reynolds, Career Development Manager and Career Coach at FlexJobs, a site for telecommuting and flexible job listings. Bree is based in Boston. Hi, Bree. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad to have both of you. Before we start, let me just let people hear a sampling of what's out there online uh, offering advice. So here's a little bit of a numerous how to get a job during a pandemic videos. We're all looking at a summer of armchair internships and kitchen co-working spaces. But what happens after that? Today, we're tackling networking. Trying to build the kinds of relationships that will take your career to the next level is a lot of pressure. Add a pandemic to the mix and it's even more complicated. Hey, ambitious professionals. In today's video, I want to walk you through things that you can expect when it comes to your job search during this coronavirus situation. Here's what you need to know about getting a job during the coronavirus outbreak. I'm a human resources professional who is steeped in this every day from the business side, and I've gotten hundreds of emails from job seekers like you to let me know what they're up to. 
So, you two, uh, there's a lot of advice floating out there on YouTube. And obviously, uh, all of it seems to be geared around COVID-19 and its impact, which makes sense. So let me ask you both uh, one question to start. Has the pandemic caused permanent changes to the employment environment? Karen, I'll start with you. Yes, there's no question that the answer is yes, right? The most obvious changes will be the way that we do work. Uh, We're already finding at Northeastern, for example, there have been some benefits to going remote. For example, our global learners who are in different time zones all around the world, they can join us in ways that they didn't when some of our programs were on the ground. So I think some of these things will stay um, residually. Um, The part I wanna really emphasize that I was listening to in those comments is, you know, I want to remind everyone that before COVID, we had a fairly disruptive economy where the old ways of thinking about a career as just a track you were on that would last for 20 or 25 years, that was gone long before COVID. And people have to think of themselves in a more agile way, think about how to pivot when things change. So COVID, in my opinion, has just um, really emphasized the new ways that people need to think about careering these days. If I understand you correctly, really then employment is fluid and is going to be for now on. It was, it is, and it will be. Absolutely. Okay. Bree, same question to you. Has the pandemic caused permanent changes to the employment environment? Yes, I totally agree with Karen. It's definitely changed it. The changes have been coming before this kind of slowly but steadily. So at FlexJobs, we've been looking at what remote work has looked like in the last 10 to 15 years. And it's been slow, steady growth, even through the last recession, we saw remote jobs grow. But this uh, situation, this pandemic has really caused remote work to skyrocket. And so I think uh, the way that we are working, the way that people even assume that they will be working in the future has completely changed in as little as five months time. So it's definitely something where we think that this will have a permanent change on the way that people work and how they think about work and what it means, Um, not just in terms of location, but uh, synchronous and asynchronous uh, work, you know, uh, the hours that you're working, all of those pieces of your day-to-day work schedule, I think are going to be altered for the foreseeable future. So there are three groups of folks at this point. Those are people looking for work who've lost jobs, as we've mentioned. Those are the new college grads um, who are just entering the marketplace. And and the folks who already have a job right now and are working out of the office, they have to pay attention as well because of what we just said about the fluidity of employment from now on. So let me start with Karen. What's the thing that can, the, the, the tip that you would offer that goes across all three of those groups in this moment? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the first big one that I think COVID has brought out differently than some other periods is that you're not alone in what you're going through, right? This has been such a collective impact that sometimes when someone's unemployed or they're going through a transition, they put a lot on themselves, you know? Oh, what, you know, what did I do wrong? Why is this happening? And now you can kind of go out there and there will be a lot of collective compassionate understanding that, you know, we're in this together. So I actually think there is a positive side to, to being on the market right now, which is that people understand why. Brie, what would you say? I think I agree with that. There is that sort of collective reason why whatever you're experiencing in your job search is happening. And so that's one of the things we've been advising people is to really, if you've been laid off or furloughed or you are making a career transition because what you wanted to do 
is no longer available. Um, to, to really rely on that reasoning, you know, the pandemic has caused so many changes. Um, we're also seeing employers be very sympathetic towards that and understanding. So it is very unique in this situation, this particular economic downturn, that everyone has kind of this built-in explanation for why they are changing careers or out of work or whatever it might be. So we have people rely on that a lot. And then the other thing is to really think about um, if you are interested in working remotely in the future, using the experience that you've had in the last several months, if you've been working remotely, schooling remotely, doing anything like that in a professional capacity, uh, away from other people physically, that is a good experience and it shows that you can do that work and that should be present in your application materials to show that you really have what it takes to do work in a remote way. So let me follow up with you, uh, Bree. Um, you're at Flex Jobs, a site for telecommuting and flexible job listings. Um, I was just looking at a piece from CNBC, and they uh, the piece was about the five remote jobs that are in high demand. And they mentioned recruiter, sales, account executive, customer service representative, mortgage loan originator, uh, computer support specialist. It's just, uh, you know, five that they picked out. But my larger question is... Um, the remote space in and of itself, how do you, um, what do you do if you are not right now um, so savvy in the digital space? Um, how do you get yourself to a point that even though, as you both said, uh, employers are sympathetic because we're all gone through something and are going through something here, but it seems to me that remote is really going to be the cornerstone in the future. And so you got to know these skills. Yeah, that's very true. And I think one of the larger deficits that we find in working with job seekers is exactly that. It's the transitioning your ability as a professional in a traditional office environment to how do you do that work remotely. And training is definitely involved. There is um, a lot of opportunity for self-training in this time. So we often recommend people learn about the types of tools that are being used on remote teams, um, you know, instant messaging, web conferencing, video conferencing, um, and, and those types of programs, project management software, and start to actually use those, um, just testing them out in your own personal time to build up those skills. One of the things that we've noticed is that there isn't usually a lot of training offered by the employers. They sort of expect that base level of knowledge in terms of how to operate in a digital world. Um, and so that's something that you can definitely train up on yourself. We often recommend people uh, uh, collaborate with their friends and family so they have that actual back and forth experience on those platforms. And most of them offer free versions or free trials. So we're always having people you know, go out, get themselves educated on those, spend some time, look at tutorials on YouTube, um, and really get to know those so that they're comfortable and when that comes up in the job process, the job search process, they'll be able to point to all of the training that they've been doing for themselves to, um, to know how to communicate and operate in a remote environment. Um, Karen, what would you add to that, um, how, it, how people can get themselves comfortable uh, in the digital space? Yes. Well, you know, the other interesting thing about COVID right now is that you've got uh, multiple generations working remotely at home, right? Some are homeschooling. So there's this actual opportunity to have your kids, your college students who may be around, um, teach you the technologies that you need to learn. That, that wasn't always possible when everybody was off doing their work in separate spaces. So I would say that, are you maximizing your own family resources, as Bree said, to, you know, get some help with this. And I would reinforce the point, there is so much good 
free open content online. If you just would do some Google searching, you can put yourself through a lot of tutorials. Um, the point I would add to this that I think is really important is about mindset. We've all heard the terms agile mindset or growth mindset, right? But what that really means is that you understand that you can learn something. You will do it. You're just putting yourself in that frame of mind. I can do this. Um, as opposed to I'm too old, you know, all the things we say to ourselves that would be what we call a fixed mindset. And that's going to set you up to feel like, you know, defeated from the start. So really think about what are, what are you saying to yourself? Are you giving yourself the encouragement that you need to just explore and try to start learning some new things? I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Karen Cardozo of Northeastern University's Employer Engagement and Career Design and Bree Reynolds of FlexJobs. We're discussing the ever-changing employment environment during COVID-19. All right, a really practical question to both of you. What does your resume look like or should look like in this moment to be in the maximum place to be seen by whomever it's going to be seen by, or if it's a computer, to be picked up by a computer. I'll start with you, um, Bree. There are definitely a few things you can do um, when you're writing your resume. Uh, it's not that it looks completely different from resumes of the past, but what we find particularly helpful when you're applying online, like you said, you're uploading to the computer, um, is to have a, a sort of summary and key skills list towards the top of your resume that really goes into your most critical skills and experience and attributes for that particular job. So if you actually look at the job description and start highlighting those keywords that stand out that seem very important for that job, and then making sure whatever you match goes onto your resume, especially in that top section, that's really helpful both for the um, upload process and the computers that are scanning it and for a human reader who's really just sort of browsing your resume, going over it really quickly, and they can pick out those keywords and kind of check off the boxes in their mind about how you're qualified for their one job. So that's really important to do for each individual job. And then for remote work in particular, what we usually recommend going back to our um, advice on training up for your technical skills is to have a technical skills section where you actually list the remote programs and tools that you are familiar with. So if you know Zoom and Skype and Google Drive, things like that, you can add those to your technology skills section. And one of the things we always hear is, is that too basic? Do I need to have that on my resume? But because this is still a fairly new territory where not everyone is familiar with those tools, it does really help employers to know that you are ready to work the way that they need you to work. So those are two key things I would do. All right, Karen. That is such a perfect answer. I, I can't improve upon that, <laughs> but I would, I would add something fascinating I've noticed from years in higher ed is that students were always taught not to plagiarize, do mm. not copy other people's words. And so I've learned to explicitly say, plagiarize, honey. This is the moment where you're supposed to, at what Bree just said is you're supposed to literally use the same words so wow. that they can see the match. And I found that's a really helpful reframe. So I wanted to say that. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that 
Um, we're often taught to think in terms of fields we're applying to or industry. So you say, um, I'm looking for a job in healthcare or I work in media. But for this time where a lot of flexibility and agility is needed, try to start thinking about the functions that you inhabit or the roles you could play. So instead you would say something like, I analyze data or I manage events. And when you think about it that way and you start scanning the landscape, you realize oh, those functions, they appear in every industry. So it's a little mental reframe that can help you think, am I limiting myself because I think of myself as, you know, working in a particular field? So that's an example of some of the agility you can do when you start reviewing your resume and thinking about all the different things you've done. Well, that's interesting you bring that up, Karen, because I was looking at a piece uh, in the Boston Business Journal, um, which was published in April by uh, Lucia Maffi, and she's a technology mm-hmm. reporter for them. And she broke down how many jobs in various fields are open now. But if you read the descriptions, they, you know, call for different sets of skills. So it's interesting. So uh, at that point, she said 62 percent of New England companies are still hiring. That was in April. So uh, there's got to mm-hmm. be at least uh, 50 percent of those people still looking. So she broke it down in tech and sales and marketing and uh, product management and uh, on and on. And then another group called other jobs. But, for example, I just I'm just picking out Firefly Health, a virtual primary uh-huh. care provider looking for a software engineer. So that would be a tech skill and a product designer tech skill. The company, however, is also hiring for a wide variety of healthcare positions like nurse practitioners and behavioral health specialists. So you really have to go deeper than just Mm -hmm. the headline, as you're saying. Exactly. If you think about, especially the larger an organization, any complex organization will have almost every function. They'll have human resources, they'll have communications, they'll have sales, they'll have facilities and, you know, physical plant management. So um, it's up to us to kind of put on this different set of lenses and look around and see, you know, what are all the functions that need to get done in this organization? Which of those could I contribute to? All right. Now, as we've mentioned, uh, there are people who are already working. Um, most of them are still going to be working remotely. And so there's changes there in how you work and um, really how you keep yourself in a state of readiness, if both of you have said, because employment is fluid. Um, start with you, Bree. What What's your advice for people who are already working about how they interact now with their employers and how they can situate themselves so that they're ready um, to change if need be. Yeah, and as somebody who's worked remotely for 10 years, I can say if you're currently working remotely and this is your first experience, this is not normal. <laughs> this pandemic <laughs> work where you're home with your, your spouse or your partner, roommates, kids, and everybody's all in that same house and you're all trying to concentrate on different things and hogging the internet from each other is not normal. Um, so that being said, if you, can, if you can work remotely in this situation, you can probably do it really well under normal circumstances. Um, so as you're transitioning, um, if you're thinking about going to a new employer, think about that type of experience that you've had under this high pressure situation and the ways that you've been able to stay productive and effective and how you've actually set yourself up to work really well under these conditions, because that can show your current employer and future employers about 
your kind of work ethic, your dedication, and your ability to, to work really well remotely so that they don't have to worry about you. That's one of the things we often find is employers are nervous about remote employees because they can't see them working. And so they have to develop these other ways of being able to tell if somebody is staying on task and being productive. Uh, one final thing I'll, I'll recommend is definitely um, updating your current boss and your coworkers, whoever might need to be in the know about what you're doing on a regular basis. There's so much heads down independent work when you're working remotely, and it can be really easy to kind of get into a flow and then forget to let everyone know uh, what you've accomplished because you're, you're just busy going through it. Um, so having even just a weekly update email to folks, letting them know of the things you've accomplished, what you're planning to work on the next week, or even asking for just a quick weekly meeting to go over those sorts of things and keep your boss apprised of what you're doing can be really helpful. So you're staying top of mind and people can see that you really are contributing. All right, Karen. That's great advice. Um, I would add the old saw about um, how to keep your networks active and supple. You know, the time where jobs come from is, is relationships, right? Not just online listings. You hear about someone leaving and they say, hey, are you interested maybe in this position? So you, you have to keep your networks active and, and, and the key part is to do that even when you feel like your job is secure and you don't need a job. It's like flexing a muscle, right? You stay in shape with that. You stay curious and interested in what other people are doing in their organization. So uh, the other thing about networking that I think is always interesting is that you can't see other people's networks. So there may be people right now that you're thinking you don't need to talk to because they're a nurse and you don't want to be a nurse, but who do they know, again, in this complex organization in which they work? So your job is to stay in touch with people, tell as many people as possible what you do do, what you're interested in if you're unemployed, and let the network start to bring some of the information to you. You, you can't go it alone, and there's a whole village out there, but you need to be out there talking to people. So number one tip from each of you that if you don't do anything else, you must do this, Brie. I would say, I actually, to go back to what Karen was saying before, uh, a little uh, side addendum to that, one of the things we found helps people be much more successful when they are searching for listings is to search by their skills. So we were talking earlier about how your skills are really important, how focusing on a certain industry or job title can be a little bit limiting. If you actually do keyword searches on job search websites like FlexJobs for skills that you have, that you are really interested in using in your next job, and maybe pair that with the type of industry or career field or some other job titles, it can come back with some really interesting results. And I've had coaching clients who will come back and say, I never would have found this job listing if I had just been searching by job title because it has one of those fancy job titles. So, um, so I say, you know, keyword uh, searching by skills can be really helpful and break open some new opportunities. Karen, your number one tip. That was a fantastic tip, Brie. I would add maybe a counterintuitive one, which is do some self-care. I don't care what it is. It could be a bubble bath, working out. You need to stay centered and calm and feel good about yourself in the process. That's how you do well when you go out on the market. And the irony is that you're anxious and stressed because you don't have a job or you're looking for a job. So you neglect the self-care and it becomes this vicious cycle where you can really kind of fall into some some tough mindsets. So I would say, even though it may not seem related to your um, career development, having some kind of practice of self-care will actually help you do the process the way that you need to do it. 
And I would imagine both of you just say stay positive because it can feel heavy, I think. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And this is the last question, uh, starting with you, Karen. What is the most clever or innovative approach you've seen uh, to getting a job? We're seeing a lot of entrepreneurial spirit right now. I think sometimes people have actually gone in to apply for one job and um, ended up with another because they were paying attention, let's say in an interview conversation and said, do you have someone that does X, Y, or Z? Um, I would love to do that. So that doesn't happen so often, but honestly, when you do that and you identify a gap, um, that could be your job. Brie? Oh, I love that one. That's such a good one. Um, So I would say, actually, one of my um, coaches on my team was working with a client recently who found a a perfect job, his dream job, but it was not a remote job. And he really wants to work remotely ongoing. And he decided to apply anyway. And he wrote a really good cover letter that outlined why he thought the job could be done remotely and how he would do it really well. And then of course, all of his experience that would make him do this job particularly well anyway. And he actually got an interview. So now he's in talks with this company to turn this uh, role into a remote role when it wasn't posted that way at all. So I think taking a chance, um, you know, not seeing something as impossible just because it isn't written exactly the way you would like to see it in a job description or something like that, but taking chances and really making your case for why you think a certain job should be a certain way or why you're a good candidate for an unlikely job and seeing what happens. There's nothing to lose really. Mm. You know what that makes me think of, Kelly? Can I add one more point? Sure. The one downside about what we said of, of everyone's in the same boat with COVID is that then it might make it harder to differentiate yourself, right? If more and more people are having the same story, this is what I was doing, this is what happened to me. So to to Bree's point, one of the really important things is to think about, you know, how to take that initiative to um, be distinctive, you know, bring your own case to the table of how you how you see something. Don't be afraid to offer that perspective. The worst they can say is no, which may have happened anyway, but what you've done is you've, you've differentiated yourself in showing a way that you think or bringing a useful suggestion to the table. So I just want to underscore what Bree was saying. I think that really is a successful tactic now. Well, you two are rock stars. Hope to have you on our air in the future. Thank you so much. Sounds great. Thank you very much. <laughs> Karen Cardozo is an assistant vice president of Northeastern University's Employer Engagement and Career Design. Bree Reynolds is a career development manager and career coach at Flex Jobs, a site for telecommuting and flexible job listings. Well, that's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org News, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Kate Dario. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>